Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 28. I want to spend a little bit of extra time at the end, so we'll just jump right in here at the beginning. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paden Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's house, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paden Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. So Isaac here is fully on board with what God is doing. He didn't start there, but he is there now. He reiterates his blessing on Jacob, and he sends him out to find a wife from among Abraham's and Rebekah's kinsmen. Now this is where he should have been all along, but it has taken a very winding road indeed to get him here. Verse 6 says, Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paden Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paden Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Now, it's hard to know exactly what Esau is trying to do here. Is he trying to be a better son? Is he trying to win his way back into the line of blessing? Kidner thinks so. He says, his attempt to do the approved thing was like most religious efforts of the natural man, superficial and ill-judged. To take a third wife, even though an Ishmaelite was better than a Hittite, was hardly the way back to blessing. At best, this is clunky, and at worst, this is carnal. Uh, Whatever it is, it doesn't work, and the focus goes back to Jacob, who is now the carrier of the promise. Verse 10 goes on to say, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. 
Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Now this is the story most of us know as the story of Jacob's ladder. It is a picture of remarkable grace. Jacob has done nothing thus far but lie, cheat, and scheme. But he has believed in the power of the promises. He believes in the blessing. He has faith, but nothing but faith. And God meets him. God meets him as a sinner who believes. And we are reminded here that the spiritual journey begins with grace and faith, and often nothing more than that. Jacob is alone. He's on the run. He's a fugitive running from failure and hostility. But here he is met by the king of heaven, complete with angelic retinue. Here he is met with assurance upon assurance upon assurance. God meets even the frailest faith with new and additional grace and promise. That is worth remembering. And the promises here are great indeed. God promises to give him everything that he had promised to Abraham, everything that had been passed on to Isaac. He has promised land, offspring, and a blessing inside him that will be for all the peoples of the earth. Best of all, he has promised the presence and protection of God himself. God says, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this place. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That is a strong and powerful promise, and Jacob is appropriately overwhelmed, and he responds as best he knows how. Verse 18 says, So, early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, Jacob does here what his father and his grandfather have done before him. He responds with worship to the word and promise of God. That's what worship is. Worship is the response of God's people to who God is and what God graciously does for us. That's what worship is, Old Testament and New. Now, here is probably as good as any place to talk about tithing. Just like Abraham before him, Jacob tithes here, 
as part of his worshipful response to God. What should we say about that? The tithe has always been understood primarily as a statement of faith. It intends to say, God, I believe that you are with me and that you are for me and that you mean to work through me. I believe what you have said in your word concerning me. I believe that you are large and in charge and that you are bringing your purposes to pass. Therefore, I will not fear. You can say that with your mouth, of course. But as the old saying goes, money speaks louder than words. So a tithe is a way of saying that you recognize that God is blessing you and that God is your superior in every way. It's a way of saying, I am your servant. This is your money. It came from you, and I hereby return a portion of it to you. Tithing is a form of worship that specifically intends to communicate gratitude faith, and submission. That's what it is. But many Christians today debate whether the principle of the tithe carries over into the New Testament. It is sometimes said that the New Testament nowhere explicitly commands people to tithe. Well, that isn't quite true. Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus there clearly tells them not to neglect tithing. That, that's a command. Now, while that is clearly not the only thing and not even the main thing that he is trying to get across in this verse, it cannot be denied that it is there. So while Jesus was most intent on reminding the Pharisees and scribes to care about justice, mercy, and faithfulness, in the context of doing that, he does in fact remind them not to neglect tithing. It's also important to remember that tithing is not introduced in the Mosaic Covenant. Rather, it is regulated and formalized in the Mosaic Covenant. Sometimes you'll hear Christians say, well, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant anymore. We're not under the law. Well, that's True, but of course it's important to notice here that tithing comes before the Mosaic Law. And it's also important to understand what the Mosaic Law is. The Mosaic Law is not a new covenant, really. It is a special addition to the covenant. It is a, a, an addition that intends to teach us and that intends to communicate with us. And we know that it is intended to be temporary. The Apostle Paul says that in Galatians 3. He says in Galatians 3, 16 to 27, now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. So there he's saying, at root, fundamentally, we began this whole discussion about covenant, talking about at root, the covenant is a covenant of grace and promise. And it's made to Abraham. The Abraham covenant is kind of the fundamental covenant. All right, so Paul says that. He says, the law, which came 430 years afterward. Now he's talking about the Mosaic law does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promises void. So he's saying when the Mosaic covenant came, it's not like it erased the Abrahamic covenant. It came to help the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Verse 19, why then the law? Great question. A question that Christians need to wrestle with. Why then the law? Here's the answer. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. 
and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So why the Mosaic Covenant? It wasn't to get rid of the Abrahamic Covenant. It was to help it. It was an addition. It was the addition of some restrictions and some further clarity and some further communication, all of which would be helpful, Paul says, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And of course, we know that is Christ. Paul goes on to say in verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God, right? Does the law point people in a different direction than the Abrahamic covenant? Okay, certainly not, he says. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's an incredibly important passage in the New Testament. Here Paul says, the Abrahamic covenant is primary. It's the fundamental covenant in the Old Testament. And it points forward, ultimately, to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So then why did we need the law? Why did we need the Mosaic covenant, Paul asks? Because we needed a teacher. We needed some bumper rails suggesting the right ways to live before God and with one another. The Mosaic covenant was a teacher and a guardian. Until we were ready to live the way we should as the covenant children of God. All right, let's put all that together with respect to tithing. We're dealing with a very important general concept, the relation of the law to the Abrahamic covenant and the relation of the law to the new covenant Christian. That's the general topic. But we've been brought to this general topic by the investigation of a particularly tricky issue, which is the concept of tithing. Tithing precedes the Mosaic covenant. It was an early form of worship that was about responding to the promises of God. It was a way of expressing faith and gratitude and submission to God. Now, in the Mosaic Covenant, laws about tithing were introduced to communicate to us the right way to respond to God, to give us an idea of how we should do that. But now that we have the Holy Spirit, now that we are mature sons and daughters of God, we don't need those laws. We don't need regulations about tithing. But of course, that doesn't mean that we stop tithing. No, what it means is that we have a, a new motivation now as mature believers. We have a new guidance now, filled as we are with the Holy Spirit, with respect to tithing. And so, and so things are different. But in point of fact, that doesn't mean that we give less. It means that we almost certainly give more. In fact, in the New Testament, all the examples of giving are about more not less. Think about Acts 4, 32 to 37, for example, which says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, that doesn't mean they were communists without private property. Much of the New Testament continues to happen inside the homes of individuals, people who owned things and were willing to share them with the church. We know that, for example, a lot of the stories in Acts seem to happen in the home of John Mark's mother. She obviously wasn't a communist. She, she maintained that home as her own, but she didn't treat it as her own. She understood it as belonging to God and at God's disposal. There was not a needy person among them. 
For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Here's here's a storybook giving right here. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And we could multiply those examples of giving. Here we see the early Christians going all in. They they weren't carefully calculating their 10% tithe. They were giving 100%. Everything they had, whether they maintained possession of it or turned it over, everything they had was at the Lord's disposal. And they they were selling their stuff in order to be all in with what God was doing. So that's the theme. That's the trajectory as you move into the New Testament. The New Testament is not about being released to do less. It's about being motivated to do more. We've been given more grace and more blessing, and therefore we respond freely with more service and more worship, and of course that includes tithing. Now, interestingly, most Christian scholars and commentators, they land here, practically speaking, although some of them get here in somewhat different ways. I've I've heard John Piper and Thomas Schreiner teach on this topic, and they disagree slightly with each other and and with me, uh, not knowing that they're disagreeing with me, but I'm saying there's a variety of ways of getting here on the intricate details. But here's the thing. Almost every credible New Testament scholar lands here. They agree that New Testament believers, particularly those living in North America and enjoying the abundance of riches that we enjoy, should not be looking for ways to give less than the saints in the Old Testament, but should be glad for the opportunity, desiring an opportunity, and and rejoicing in the opportunity to give more. Tithing is about responding to the goodness and kindness of our covenant-keeping God. On the other side of the cross, filled with the Holy Spirit, we, above all people, should be ready to move beyond law and beyond less. We want to give more because we have been given more. We've been given everything through the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. 
There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 